This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up. One Tucsonan story about becoming emotionally honest and accountable while taking a stand against depression in their communities. Find out how some local library employees formed the Kindred Team to invite the public to join them in reading one book a month that can reveal and explore black culture. And understanding the FBI way from the firsthand perspective that former FBI Special Agent Frank Vigluzzi shares in his new book. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson and M. Bowen's experience as a human being has gone through different cycles of gender expression. Now a movement coach, a teacher, and a stand-up comedian, M. uses the knowledge they've gained to teach others how to unwind the stories that have been given to them about their own lives and bodies. You'll learn more next in this profile, produced for Arizona Illustrated by Koich Nisiman. My name is M. My pronouns are they and them. I'm a movement coach, teacher, and a stand-up comedian. Next thing I want you to do, we're going to stay in this position. You're going to reach over to one side. You're going to stretch your side body, your lats. We are given stories that are told about our bodies. And I think, strangely, training for me and personal training and like working with people and their bodies is less about like how many squats you can do and more about how can you unwind those old stories that do not serve you and your existence on this planet and your, your capacity to feel joy and do the things that you want. And how can you tell new stories, you know, inhabit the body from that space, like, that there's inherent knowledge there waiting for you, especially people who are told that their bodies are expendable, that their bodies are not worthwhile or, or don't have as much value, or just people who are just kind of asked to not be at home in their bodies. And like, that's just what they're, that's supposed to be good enough for them. They're, surviving is supposed to be good enough. My gender identity and what I seem to face on a daily basis with my identity in general is the idea of coherency and like, do these things fit to make a complete person? Like, does it match? And I find that often it does not. And I've learned recently that it does match. It's just, it doesn't have to match. Lately, I've had to now go back through all these years of my life and all these different points and contend with the fact that I was always kind of out of myself. And it's kind of sad, actually. And there's a grief of like, I was so uncomfortable and I didn't have language for it. And this is not to say the discomfort has stopped because when you're someone who, you don't fit into the hegemony, right? You're not white, you're not of a certain socioeconomic setting, you're not able-bodied. When you're not one of those things, you're always gonna be at odds with things. Like you could be at complete peace within yourself. Like I feel very peaceful, but it doesn't mean that I'm not gonna go out in the world and find friction. Friction where other people are not finding it. <laughs> so um, you might have seen uh, in the advertisements for the show that this is an all-female lineup, and I'm here to tell you that is false. Because I am here 
I am here and I can legally show you my nipple. <laughs> Which let me tell you is the same nipple I had when I had breasts. They just it's the same one. So I would put up with that. Um, Stand up for me is is very much me taking these stuck points of these things that I'm like, I don't know how to make sense of this moment. This is a hard moment, or this is a confusing moment, or this is a ridiculous moment. And then I write jokes through it, but I do not make fun of my queerness or my transness. And I really try to, when I tell jokes, to stay within my lane. Like I find that the reason that comedy is helpful and therapeutic to me is that I'm speaking only and exclusively from my own experience about my own experience because that's all I know. What is enough? How much do we have to hurt or rejoice for it to mean something? Rather, does meaning run along an ever-changing continuum or are we all arrested to a simple formula that determines whether we can rightfully feel what is present in our infallible hearts? I think that a part of my power as a human being is that I've gone from different cycles of expressions. So I think when I was a more like feminine, cis-appearing female, like I was yelled out out the window. People, you know, crossed boundaries with me frequently. And then when I was like a butch, like queer person, or like really more like androgynous looking, people ignored me, which that was something I didn't realize was happening. And now as a masculine appearing white person, I was like, okay, maybe it's really hard being a white man. But now I have this proof that there is, there is a problem here. You know, I have a lot more choice without anyone questioning me. Like, there's just this, this inherent respect. And there's a lot less labor that I have to do to make it through the world. And it is much more easeful to be than my previous experiences. <laughs> my medical transition was like, I mean, honestly, my voice dropped. Other than that, it, it wasn't, it was not super interesting. Like my personality didn't drastically change. I was still myself. I didn't realize that everything was so boring. <laughs> and normal. Like I was just like, oh, this is, this is pretty uninteresting. Like I wasn't doing that kind of like documentation, recounting the history of my transition. But then I'm in front of a seventh grade classroom. I'm in front of a, a full class of like people doing like weightlifting stuff, right? Coaching. I'm on a stage. And I, there was just one point where I realized I was like, wow, for someone who wanted to be really private, I am literally transitioning in front of people. And I gotta say, when you're in a seventh grade classroom, everyone's going through puberty. The boys are, the girls are, I am. I'm going through my second puberty, but like, we're all going through it and it's really funny. So I don't think my experience is that unique. I think everyone better get prepared for it because it's gonna happen to you. Your hormones are gonna shift. I'm a language person. I have an MFA in creative writing. I've always been into languages and the specificity of language. So they, them is a pronoun choice that I think encapsulates the most of me. I don't think it's enough, but it, it is, it's good enough for now. I believe a multiplicity of truths. I believe that truths can be happening simultaneously. I believe that I can have, be having different emotions in my body all at once. And one doesn't cancel out the other. I think the more that you start to think that way, that there isn't this left and right, this binary thing, this Western rational way of thinking, it kind of like breaks the spell. A lot of the ways that we speak to children, especially in early grades and even beyond that, 
are in these very gendered formats. And it leaves little space for children to be as they truly are. It not only makes trans kids or gender creative children safer, but it also ensures that all other children are allowed to like the things that they like without fear of like retribution or being made fun of. They get to be their whole selves too. I don't know all the answers. Like I don't know how to make people comfortable with people who are different than them. I don't know how to ease things within our systems of oppression that we live in. But I do think that the biggest thing I'm learning is that there's this interesting dichotomy between one's own individual work and really being honest with oneself and one's family and one's history, and then also being responsible to and answering to your community. That's why I think the multiplicity thing is so important because I think you can acknowledge what's going really well for you simultaneously acknowledging things that are also difficult and hard too. And I think you have to be able to do both those things to honor your own experience, but also recognize your own power so that you can use it to work from your privilege to counteract systems of oppression. That profile of M. Bowen was produced for PBS Six by Koich Simon and adapted for radio by Zachary Harnes. You can watch the story as it appeared on Arizona Illustrated right now on our website, azpm.org. Did people actually read more books during the pandemic? During 2020, the Pima County Public Library's digital download system, called Overdrive, recorded a record-breaking one million checkouts. That information came courtesy of one of my next guests, Jessica Pride, the online services librarian for the Pima County Public Library. Back in 2017, Tanisha Phillips, Pride's friend and colleague at the Mesa Public Library, became a founding member of the Kindred Team, an association of library employees of color who want to share the best and boldest examples of black written literature with everyone. I wanted to speak to them about the hashtag ReadBlack initiative, and Tanisha Phillips begins. Our mission is to reach, support, and celebrate the black community in Pima County, that's inside libraries and outside libraries. And so we do that in a variety of ways, which include our collection, uh, our programming, supporting other community organizations, being visible in library spaces. And so we are very proud of that work. And as a science fiction fan myself, I find it very encouraging that you chose a work of science fiction to name your team after from the great Octavia Butler. And it's interesting that folks connect our name to Octavia's work It also has uh, to do with the definition of kindred, which we, when coming up with a name, were very intentional about there's power in a name, there's power in words, and we wanted our name to be powerful. Multiple reasons for it. Jessica, I'd like you to share with us the origins of hashtag ReadBlack and what the goal of this project is. As Tanisha mentioned, one of our primary focuses is to not just um, provide collections, but programming that not only reach Black members of our community, but reveal the Black community to the rest of the Pima County area. We had a bunch of meetings and some people asked us if we were thinking about doing a book club. It was right before the pandemic that we decided we were going to do that. And the first one we had was going to be March 2020. And we were going to talk about books by and about Black women. And 
that didn't happen, but we finally were able to get it set up virtually via Zoom, and we have actually never had a week-lack conversation in person, like face-to-face. We've had people join from Washington and Detroit, people who either have a connection to here or were moving here and wanted to check it out, people who've moved here since the pandemic started and really wanted some community It's not huge because, really, book clubs should not be huge. (laughs) But the people who've come have been really involved in it, and it's been great to see. Well, let me ask you both this. Um, One thing that might come to people's mind is online communities often have difficulty maintaining decorum and Mm -hmm. making sure that everyone shares the floor. How would you say that the online meetings have fared in that direction in terms of having productive and inclusive conversation? I think Jessica is a fantastic facilitator. She has facilitated a significant number of our Read Black conversations. I have learned from watching her and how she creates a a safe and respectful and brave space and making sure that one person doesn't overpower the conversation and so that folks can feel like they can jump in. And so we've worked really hard at that, asking questions and also recognizing that not everyone wants to talk. They may yeah. want to put their, their comments in the chat. So we use the chat as well. Also recognizing that everyone wants to have their camera on. So we work really hard at creating a space where folks feel comfortable and can jump in. Well, I think it's important because coming up next on February 26th, there'll be a hashtag read black conversation that will cover the 1619 project. Tell me why you chose this work and what people who think that it's a monolithic study that might be too big to absorb, say, in the month of February, what advice do you have to give them about how best to interact with the 1619 Project? Um, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who created this project first with the New York Times and then as a book, calls it a new origin story. No history is a monolith, right? The way that I've been approaching it is because it's really difficult to read all at once is reading one section at a time and sort of really embracing what each of the authors has to say. And the people writing are journalists, they're historians, they're sociologists, they're interspersed segments that are poetry and prosaic loveliness and just sort of approaching it with an open mind as to what information they've upturned that we haven't really learned before. I think that what we're discovering is that there are more than one perspective to to what has taken place historically. The 1619 project examines the foundation on which this country has been built. And so I think that has caused some conversation and some discussion. It's an opportunity to hear different perspectives on how the U.S. started, uh, and we are really excited about that. I have a list here in front of me that was supplied by the library of the books that are coming up each month through December of this year. I'd like for you to take a a title and share it with us and tell us why you think it deserved a place on this list and what excites you as a reader about it. Tanisha? If I were going to choose one uh, that we have chosen for the year, it would be Blackout, which is a collection of, of stories uh, by a variety of authors, including Nick Stone, Angie Thomas. I, you can't see me, but I'm like doing a bow. What would you say is a thread or a theme that carries through the stories in Blackout? The lights go out in New York City. 
And so it's stories around that theme. Each author has has written a short story using that as their basis. Yeah, I'm intrigued to see what folks think about the different stories and the different um, ways each author has used that to create. My guests were Tanisha Phillips, the branch coordinator of the Red Mountain Library in Mesa, and Jessica Pride, online services librarian for the Pima County Public Library. They represented the Kindred team. You can find the hashtag ReadBlackBookList for 2022 and find out how to register for the monthly online discussions on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The vast majority of FBI agents will never become familiar faces. But following 25 years of service with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, former special agent and assistant director of counterintelligence Frank Fugluzzi did just that. The Tucson resident is now a regular contributor to NBC News and MSNBC. He's often called upon to lend his expertise with threat analysis. Frank Fagluzzi's personal code of conduct will always be guided by the seven C's. That's code, conservancy, clarity, consequences, compassion, credibility, and consistency. He elaborates on these concepts in his new book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. You know, I deliberately chose as the first of the seven C's and the first of those seven chapters, I, I chose the concept of code. Because I believe that everything else in our value systems and in the way you run effective teams, it all flows from your established code of conduct. Where do you get your code from? From your core values, from the exercise of sitting down as a business, a team, an organization, even a family, and saying, what do we stand for? What is it that our mission dictates um, our behavior look like? And what is it we should never do? And it may be a family environment. It may just be sitting the kids down and and partners and saying, we never lie to each other. We're never going to lie to each other. And the FBI both enforces its own code internally and then, of course, famously has to deal with people in society as they enforce laws who have very different codes. And now even as a nation, we really have lost sight of what our code is. And my book came out, and we could never have predicted this, but my book came out in January uh, when, of course, we then had uh, what I call an insurrection at the United States Capitol, an attempt to overturn an election. And as I watched that play out that day, I saw people operating with a different code of conduct, and perhaps it could be said even no code. You point out that the vetting system for, say, a political candidate is a much looser and perhaps even non-existent framework compared to the stringency that the Bureau applies. With what this nation has been through in the last four or five years, it's not surprising that I get stopped sometimes in the supermarket and asked, Frank, how did this person become a senator, a congressperson? How did this person get to the presidency without all of uh, these potential security threats, issues, concerns coming out without the full vetting of allegations of foreign compromise or what have you. And I, I look at them and I go, okay, this is a teachable moment. Because the assumption that many people have that at high levels of government, an elected office, that there's some kind of vetting process, 
some men or women in suits back in D.C. who are saying, yep, they're good for a clearance. Yep, they're good to be a vice president or president. That, that doesn't happen in our society. And I'm not advocating that any bureaucrats tell us who to vote for. But I do think that there's, there should be a wake-up call here, that it's time to more fully vet as a society, and I look particularly to, to media on this, who we're going to vote for for elected office. Because the, the reality is they don't go through any background investigation. The cleaning crew at FBI headquarters in Washington goes through a far more fulsome vetting process in terms of their background, arrest, criminal, foreign um, associations, before they get a clearance to get into FBI headquarters than any elected official. We are a democratic society. We want the people to vote for who they want to vote for. But one of the things I'm a huge advocate for, for example, is full disclosure of tax returns for for any candidate for federal office. I think that's a no-brainer. I think foreign business interests for family, immediate family members as well, we need to look at that. How do we get more informed to understand who we're putting in positions of responsibility? Another chapter in your book focuses on the principle of candor. You detail a case where you had to assess a situation with an agent who wasn't telling the truth and um, advise on whatever disciplinary action should follow. In your mind, Frank, does candor get a second chance? I write an entire chapter on consequences, again, with the theme of the seven C's. And then the following chapter right after Consequences is a chapter called Compassion. But we've got to go back to that first chapter, Code. So when you sit down as an organization, team, or family, and you decide what is it we will never do because it is so antithetical to what we stand for that it would undermine our organization. And in the FBI, that one thing that the FBI said cannot happen because it it destroys who we are is lying under oath. And for that, you get dismissed. The FBI, for a living, has to be able to make a case in court, has to be able to put agents and personnel on the witness stand and have the jury believe them. So the second that you are engaged in a lack of trustworthiness and candor, um, a decision has to be made about whether you can continue on as an FBI agent. So I did have to make a call, uh, numerous calls, during a period of my career. And the one that I was allowed to talk about because it hit the court system Um, in the book, was one of a young superstar, talented agent who just chose to lie about a seemingly insignificant thing. Um, And I had to wrestle with that decision. And the decision was to move toward dismissal because um, he had done that one thing that you can't do. So I knew I was going to be interviewing you about speaking at the Brandeis event. And I believe it was about a week ago. I turned on my TV and there you were. Michael Bloomberg uh, faced a terrible situation where his housekeeper had been kidnapped, and MSNBC contacted you for comment. Now, she was retrieved safely after about 48 hours. Right. This was the housekeeping supervisor. Yeah. Yeah. You made the point, though, that how many of us know how to lower our heart rate to suppress our fight-or-flight instincts in order to make calm and carefully measured decisions if we were in a situation like that. Frank, speak to that. If people find themselves in a suddenly incredibly stressful, dangerous situation, what would be the first thing, if you could be their guardian angel and whisper something in their ear, what is something that you would want to share with a person in that kind of situation? I like this question because uh, I 
I tend to be a student of human behavior. And so when I was called upon to comment on television about this kidnapping of a staff member of uh, at Michael Bloomberg's ranch, and, um, I said, well, we've got a happy ending here. This woman was recovered safely. Bad guy is uh, no longer a threat. Fantastic. What can we take away from this? And, and one of the things that I saw in this woman who was kidnapped, driven across state lines, Colorado to Wyoming, where finally a Cheyenne police SWAT team effected a hostage rescue in a motel room. She had to actually get in bed with him overnight. Um, he had her embraced in his arms all night. I mean, this is an incredibly life or death stressful situation. She survived it. How did she survive it? She talked to him calmly and she didn't panic. Um, there was a device in the, in the car, an iPad that allowed authorities to track location. All of this was just phenomenal. And the last chapter of my book, Mark, is called, and the last of the seven C's, is consistency. When you're faced with something you've never faced before, we tend as human beings to jettison all the policies and protocols we have in our team, our organization, our life, the way we conduct ourselves. And we say there must be some different way to handle this. And, and my message to somebody who's either being held at gunpoint and kidnapped or to an entire nation that's wondering where we go from here under what seems to be an unprecedented level of polarization and stress in our society, a threat to democracy, do we throw everything out and try to find something new, or do we go with our instincts and our protocols that got us here? If you act with consistency under the severe pressure, the kind of pressure the FBI is under every single day, if we stick to the rule of law, the Constitution, three equal branches of government, if we fight for them and stick with them, we will survive this. And I think that's, that's the lesson of the entire book. It's the lesson of a, that woman who was kidnapped and survived as well. Your book begins with a boy who wanted to be an FBI agent. Along the way, you found yourself in so many different situations, we can't even refer to them, including confronting the worst that humanity has to offer. If you right now were to go back and talk to young Frank, what might you say about his career choice to become an FBI agent? I would say this. I... I grew up in a family um, that led me to an early interest in law and enforcing the law because we had a kind of really strong sense of right and wrong. That there were good people in the world and there were bad people in the world. And I, I think I would have said to young, young Frank, you're on the right path. Um, you're you're going to make an impact. You're going you're gonna to do some great things for a, an incredible organization someday. But, Frank, you're also going to learn that the world is not black and white. It's actually very, very gray. And you need to see the good and bad in all people and not categorize um, so simply. And I think that only comes with seasoning and experience <laughs> and age. But I would, have, I would have reminded young Frank, work hard to see the good and bad in everybody because the world's just not that simple. That was former FBI Special Agent and Assistant Director of Counterintelligence Frank Fagluzzi talking to me about his book, The FBI Way, Inside the Bureau's Code of Excellence. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. 
AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.